Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 3. Last time, we left off with the founding of Carthage by Dido, the tragic princess of Tyre who burned herself alive due to her refusal to marry a Libyan king or her rejection by a Trojan prince. Today, we pick up with Dido's city, Carthadash, and discuss its meteoric rise in the Mediterranean. From the beginning, it seems that the Tyrian exiles had grandiose visions for their new city. Even the settlement's name, Carthadasht, which means new city in Phoenician, seems to imply that the city was to be the new Tyre of the western Mediterranean. As a quick clarification, the name Carthadash was later Latinized into Cathargo, from which we derive our word for the city and the civilization, Carthage. The Tyrian founders' expectations were not disappointed, for the colony grew exponentially from the few early settlers into a thriving cosmopolitan port. Several things were in Carthage's favor to support this sudden explosion of growth. Situated on the eastern edge of North Africa in what is now modern-day Tunisia, Carthage was strategically positioned smack in the middle of nearly all the Tyrian trade routes. As we remember from last time, Tyre had developed extensive trade routes all over the Mediterranean, with a series of colonies to support them. The route from Spain to Phoenicia was particularly lucrative due to the enormous quantities of precious metals such as silver and gold that Spain could supply. But the north-south trade route from Italy, Sardinia, Corsica, and Sicily was also likely crucial to Carthage's early success. And, as always, trade with Greece, especially for Grecian pottery, would have made up a significant portion of Carthage's commerce. Strangely enough, another factor favoring Carthage's rise was its early reliance on imported crops. Like its mother city Tyre, Carthage began with very limited fertile land. This presented a problem as the city grew so rapidly since the local land could not support the massive increase in population. Indeed, using archaeological evidence from early Carthaginian cemeteries, it is estimated that within a hundred years of Dido's founding, Carthage had a population of 30,000 people. With all these mouths to feed, yet so little arable land to feed them with, Carthage from the start was a large consumer of agricultural produce. Archaeological evidence shows that the early settlers consumed a large number of grains, including barley, wheat, and oats, as well as lentils, fruits, olives, and wine. With the majority of this food being imported, local Phoenician colonies began to send their crops to Carthage since it was now one of the largest consumers in the region. In fact, several new Phoenician settlements were established, particularly in Sardinia, to increase access to and production of agricultural goods to send to Carthage. This massive supply operation could have led the other Phoenician settlements to begin to consider Carthage rather than Tyre as the Phoenician leader in the region, laying the seeds of Carthage's later dominance among the colonies. True to its Tyrian roots, Carthage also began to be a major producer as well as consumer of goods. Industrial workshops were established for pottery, metalworking, and purple dye making, while Carthage also manufactured and exported a massive number of terracotta figurines, masks, jewelry, woolen cloth, 
engraved bronze, and carved stone and ivory. Carthage's production increased so much within the first hundred years that there is evidence of demolition and relocation of older buildings and districts so that space could be made to expand the workshops. Similar to its demand for food, Carthage's need for raw materials to fund these large industrial works likely continued to make it a commercial power player that the other Tyrian colonies began to look up to. Catapulted by its strategic position as the trade hub in the western Mediterranean, Carthage was the city equivalent of an overnight success. Surrounded by a city wall ten feet thick, the dwellings and buildings of Carthage were laid out into large city blocks or grids even from an early date. These grids typically had a clay street running through them, with the houses facing the street doubling as a storefront for exhibiting goods. On top of the bursa, which, as we remember, was the original settlement of Carthage, would stand the temple complexes, which contained, in addition to the temples, schools, libraries, barracks for troops, and other public buildings. The Carthaginians primarily used sandstone and limestone when constructing their buildings, and thus the city of Carthage would have distinct white buildings with a definitive Middle Eastern look to it. Just outside the city walls, the massive workshops would keep up a roar of activity as the blazing furnaces and kilns churned out their goods. Later, the country around Carthage would be turned from a desert into a literal garden of green by the skill and diligence of Carthaginian cultivators, the most famous agriculturalists of the ancient world. Orchards filled with fig and pomegranate trees, groves of olive trees, fields full of wheat, barley, and other grains, and a host of other farms and vegetation would cover the landscape as far as the eye could see. Throughout all of these plots, little canals would run which would irrigate this multitude of crops while fountains and artificial waterfalls would cool the local villas of the Carthaginian nobles. These country villas would be large and elaborate buildings, with gardens and orchards surrounding them on the outside, while inside they would be filled with all the treasures and luxuries of the Mediterranean, profits of Carthaginian trade. Yet for all their nearly unrivaled commercial and political success, the Carthaginians were proud of their Tyrian origins, and carefully maintained a semblance of respect and honor towards Tyre. For a long time after its founding, members of the Carthaginian elite would travel yearly to the Temple of Melkart in Tyre, bringing a tenth of Carthage's income as a tithe. Even after Carthage had long surpassed Tyre as the foremost Phoenician city in the Mediterranean, the Carthaginian nobles still identified themselves as Tyrians or Sons of Tyre in their inscriptions. However, its loyalty to its mother city did not mean that Carthage was content to ride on Tyre's laurels, or even to fall too closely in her footsteps. Like her Tyrian ancestor, Carthage had had to import large quantities of food in the beginning to sustain its large population. But by the 400s BC, it had expanded into a significant area of North Africa surrounding the capital. Now having access to a large amount of agricultural land, the Carthaginians began extensive farming operations which would supply the majority of Carthage's foodstuffs. If you thought the early settlers had a well-balanced diet, get a load of the varied food options their children and grandchildren had. 
wheat, barley, and other cereals, countless kinds of vegetables, pulses, lentils, pomegranates, figs, grapes, olives, peaches, plums, melons, almonds, and pistachios would all be on display in the markets of Carthage, most of them having been grown on Carthage's own land. Seafood such as fish, as well as sheep, goats, pigs, chickens, and even the occasional dog, were all consumed by the Carthaginian citizens. Inspired to new efforts by their bountiful harvests, the Carthaginians soon gained the reputation of being the most successful and authoritative agriculturalists in the Mediterranean. Leading the way in these endeavors was a Carthaginian named Mago, who wrote a 28-volume manual on all sorts of agricultural topics. Although his work has not survived, we have numerous excerpts from Mago since other ancient writers often quoted him as an authority, especially on trees, fruits, and viticulture, or the making of wine. Mago was also one of the first authors to advocate fertilizers and pruning. Interestingly enough, Mago's manual was the only book the Romans took from the Carthaginian libraries after they destroyed Carthage, the rest being given to the local Libyan kings. From Mago's work and other archaeological evidence, we have learned that the Carthaginians grew large quantities of grapes, olives, peaches, plums, melons, almonds, filberts, and pistachios. This is even more impressive considering many of these crops require complex techniques such as grafting in order to be grown successfully. Carthage was also famous for its figs and pomegranates, producing so many pomegranates that the Romans called them the Malum Punicum, meaning Punic Apple. Carthage produced large amounts of olive oil and wine as well, directly continuing a Phoenician tradition since the Phoenicians were famous for their association with wine. The Phoenicians are often credited as being some of the first to bring wine to Egypt. Carthaginian sweet wine made from raisins was particularly praised by ancient writers. Coupled with its industrial production, Carthage's agricultural revolution gave it even more prestige and wealth as it exported its produce across the Mediterranean. Besides becoming a leader in the agricultural world, Carthage also deviated from its mother city in several important internal aspects. Rather than have any kings, the Carthaginian government consisted of an oligarchy of important and wealthy merchant families, who were known as the Bulm, B-apostrophe-L-M, a Phoenician word meaning lords or princes. The leaders of the Bulm seemed to have been certain families who were either elected or were just more wealthy and powerful than other contemporary families. Some of these families remained in power for several generations. For instance, the Meganid family dominated the Carthaginian political scene for nearly 200 years, from the late 500s BC to the early 300s BC. The ruling members of these families were not kings, though, and their power was checked by a council of elders made up of other members of the merchant elite. Carthage's independence from Tyre can be seen in another instance, albeit a darker and more sinister one. As we remember from the last few episodes, the chief god of Tyre was Melkart, who ruled the Tyrian pantheon along with his consort, or wife, Astart. Though Melkart held absolute sway in Tyre and other Phoenician colonies like Gades, he never achieved supremacy in Carthage, though he was an honored member of the pantheon. Rather, 
the chief deities of Carthage were Baal Hamon and his consort Tanit. Baal, which means lord or master, was a major deity in the region of Canaan. He was considered to be a god of the weather and fertility, and in Carthage he was often represented as an old man with ram's horns due to his association with rams. The crescent moon was also one of his symbols. Baal is infamous as one of the chief gods that the Hebrews and Israel turned to when they went astray, and Jehovah God often rebukes Israel in the Bible for worshipping Baal. Baal worship would consistently cause conflict throughout the Old Testament, as seen in the contest of Elijah and Jezebel's 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Though we do know the meaning of Baal, the meaning of Hamon is unclear. If we follow the Phoenician root word, hmm, the meaning could be hot, burning, or brazier, implying either that the Carthaginian Baal was lord of furnaces, or serving as a link between Baal and the sacrificial rites the Carthaginians performed in his honor. Unlike Baal, Tanit was a minor deity in the Phoenician pantheon before she came to Carthage. Baal's consort or wife, Tanit was the goddess associated with the moon, and her symbol was a stylized figure with outstretched hands. She was apparently very popular in Carthage, with her symbol appearing on a large number of steles, which are stone carvings, in North Africa. She was often called Pene Baal, meaning the face of Baal, and was considered to be the patroness and protectress of Carthage. The rites associated with the worship of Baal, Hamon, and Tenet are both dark and disturbing. If you are squeamish about graphic images, I will give you a few moments to skip ahead if you would rather not hear this part. To understand the origins of these rites, we have to go back to Phoenicia for a moment. Ancient texts from the 3000s BC onward reference the practice of Malk, MLK, being prevalent in the Middle East. Malk, which means gift or offering, often meant offering a child sacrifice in honor of the gods. Though this practice seems to have declined in Phoenicia during the time around Carthage's founding, Ancient Greek historians testify that the Carthaginians continued to practice Malk on a large scale. One of the most vivid accounts is from Diodorus Siculus, who says, There was in their city a bronze image of Kronos, which would be the Greek equivalent of Baal Hamon, extending his hands, palm upward and sloping towards the ground, so that each of the children, when placed thereupon, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. Sacrifices in honor of Tanit were just as gruesome. Greek sources state that, similar to the rites of Baal, the children would be placed in the upturned bronze hands of the goddess, which had been heated to a scalding point, where they would lay until their limbs contracted in the burning, whereupon they would fall through a space in between the hands into a burning brazier below. The 3rd century BC biographer Cleotarchus describes the ghastly process where the arms and legs shriveled and their mouths lolled open as if they were laughing. Plutarch, a 1st century AD Greek writer, states that Carthaginian families would sometimes purchase street children to substitute for their own children when it was time to sacrifice, and that loud music was played near the altars to drown out the victim's screams. 
These Greek accounts were recently subject to much skepticism regarding the extent of child sacrifice in Carthage. Remember, the Greeks were habitual rivals and even enemies of the Carthaginians, and scholars would cite Greek bias as a reason to dismiss the child sacrifice claims. However, the archaeological record offers startling evidence that confirms the numerous Greek accounts regarding Carthaginian child sacrifice. This archaeological discovery is due to the efforts of two Frenchmen, Francois Icard and Paul Gilles. In the 1920s, these two men were minor colonial officials in French North Africa. While working there, they grew suspicious of a Tunisian merchant who was selling very fine Carthaginian steles. One especially stood out from the rest. It was engraved with the picture of a man with a priest's headdress holding an infant in one arm and raising his other hand in supplication. Underneath, it was inscribed with the word Malk. After following the merchant, the two Frenchmen found him unearthing steles in a nearby field. Commandeering the land, the two men began to excavate the field. There they found numerous other steles which referenced votive offerings in honor of Baal Hamon and Tanit. Beside these were urns which contained the burnt remains of young children. The men had found the Carthaginian Tophet, a name for a place of child sacrifice derived from the Bible. Later, French archaeologists confirmed this to be one of the oldest sections of the city. Most of the remains were from children around one to four years old, and sometimes they included an older child with a younger, probably siblings. Inscriptions on the steles in the Tophet would usually have the pronoun BNT, often underlined, to emphasize the fact that the Carthaginian fathers had offered a child of their own flesh and not a substitute in honor of Baal. One stele inscription states, It was to the Lady Tanet, face of Baal, and to Baal Hamon, that Bomakar, son of Hanno, grandson of Milkiathon, vowed the son of his own flesh. Bless him, you. Child sacrifice in Carthage was considered not just a necessity or secret sin, but was a prestigious and publicly sanctioned activity that was carried out on an industrial scale. Temples in Carthage would have been massive structures that would house one of the city's most powerful and wealthy institutions, the priesthood. Each temple complex would contain a veritable army of priests, scribes, choristers, musicians, light attendants, barbers, and butchers, with the high priesthoods being reserved solely for the members of the elite families of the merchant princes. Indeed, these elite families would often use the temples to serve as dining clubs for Carthaginian nobles. Additionally, many of the children sacrificed would probably have come from noble Carthaginian families. So, amidst Carthage's great strides into prominence as a mercantile, technological, and political power, darkness was sown. For all its grandeur and majesty, all the mighty buildings and the luxurious country, its leadership in the commercial and agricultural fields, the Romans and the Greeks, no strangers to brutality themselves, would still recoil in horror at the Tophets of Carthage. But the day of Carthage's reckoning was far off, and its star had only begun to rise. Next time we will talk about how Carthage, having secured its homeland and taken its place as leader of the Phoenician colonies, would now expand outwards throughout the Mediterranean. 
an expansion that would bring it into conflict with first the Greeks and later the Romans. Until then, take care and read more history. Mm-hmm.